Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, to the Gospel, according to Luke chapter 23, and we want to read this morning verses 32 through 43. Luke's Gospel chapter 3, reading on verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the reward, the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together once more. Our Father, come to us now in these still moments as we submit ourselves before your word. Teach it to us. Apply it to us. Make us to be people formed and shaped and fashioned by your word. We pray that this morning you would open blind eyes, that you would awaken deaf ears, that you would bring the dead to life and bring light into darkness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I am paying attention to the news probably more now than at any point in my life. Some of that is through uh, television networks, some of that's through uh, blogs or things on the internet, some of that's through podcasts, but taking in more news than probably at any time in my life. And it's interesting to me uh, to discover when uh, the phrase evangelical or evangelical Christian enters into a news story and what exactly comes to mind when Uh, newscasters and and broadcasters reference evangelicals or evangelical Christians. And I wonder if your only resource, your your only outlet by which you learned about who evangelical Christians are, if your only outlet was news sources in our day and age in 21st century America, I wonder what you might conclude is most central to evangelical thought. What it is that Christian people are most passionate about. What's the the big idea, the big thing for evangelical Christians in 21st century America today? And there might be a number of answers that come to mind. If you polled a large group of people whose only resource was news outlets, perhaps they might say that thing that evangelical Christians are most passionate about, what they care most for is a certain way of life or certain behavioral standards or, or norms by which they want people to live. There's, there's, there's values that evangelicals have, and that's the big thing. That's what they seem to be most passionate about. They want people to adhere to certain behavioral norms and patterns. Another might be, another answer to the question might be um, the thing that 
evangelicals are most passionate about. The big idea for evangelicals is devotion or commitment to a particular political party. Uh, so you might think years ago of the religious right. Figures like Jerry Falwell and, and, and evangelicals were, were viewed as a sort of voting block. They had particular political and social issues that they were attached to, and, and candidates would appeal to evangelical Christians broadly on the basis of those political or social issues. Another answer might be that evangelicals are committed to a particular denomination or institutional body. Uh, there was a historian who said, only slightly tongue-in-cheek, uh, that you could define an evangelical by whether or not they like Billy Graham or, or liked the late Billy Graham. You could define evangelicals on the basis of social issues, particular perspectives about uh, abortion or euthanasia or things like that. However, if that is your answer of what is the big idea for evangelicals, what is most important to evangelicals, what evangelicals are most passionate about, and if that is true of any evangelical group or uh, evangelical Christians, that group has strayed far from what is and ought to be the central idea for evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians that hold certain behavioral patterns or allegiance to a particular denomination or political party have strayed far, far away from their biblical and historical heritage. The big idea for early evangelicals who, 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 who sort of consolidated around the great awakenings, okay? The big idea for evangelicals who are regulated and governed by the Bible is, of course, in their name itself, the evangel. That's where evangelicals get their name. What's the evangel? It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the message about Jesus Christ and his salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. That's the central issue. And so if you're here and this is your first time with us and you want to know what is the thing that these Christians here at Emmanuel Church are, are singularly most passionate about, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been celebrating it this whole service. It's the foundation of our very lives. The good news about the Lord Jesus who came into the world in human flesh, who went to the cross in obedience to his Father, suffered the wrath of God in the place of sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. And this Jesus was risen from the dead, and he currently reigns as Lord and Savior, and he offers himself to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. Our whole lives are based around that message. Indeed, those of us who are Christians have no life apart from that message. The thing that evangelicals are to be obsessed with, infatuated with, devoted to, committed to, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is that message we sing about we pray to God on the basis of the gospel. We live our lives before the Lord and with one another on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning I want to celebrate that message in this sermon. And I have turned to this text in Luke chapter 23, the account, the well-known account of the thief on the cross who comes to believe upon the Lord Jesus. And all I wish to do in this sermon is to illustrate through this account in Luke 23 five gospel principles, five principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are true from his word. Now, you know this account, many of you, probably not unfamiliar to many of us in this room. Jesus was crucified, of course, and he was crucified between two criminals. And in our account uh, this, this morning, uh, we see that one of these criminals reviles Jesus and mocks him and says, in effect, if you're really the Christ, if, you're really who you, if you really are who you say you are, 
Well, then why don't you save us and, 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 and take us down from, from these crosses? And then the other thief, who apparently had had a change of heart and come to embrace Jesus Christ, says, says, says what are you talking about? Uh, we deserve to be here. We deserve to die, and yet this man did nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says those remarkable words. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus utters the sweetest words I think a human soul can hear. This day, today, you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine what it's like to hear those words from the Lord Jesus? Sweetest words possibly in all the Bible. Well, from this account, I'd like to illustrate for us this morning five gospel principles, five principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Luke 23, 32 through 43. And the first one is this. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can experience salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, this dying thief, this criminal who believed upon the Lord Jesus and asked the Lord to remember him when he came into the Lord's kingdom. What do we know about this criminal, really? What can we deduce or learn about his life uh, according to Luke 23? Well, I think there's a few things we can deduce. We're not given tons of information, but if we read carefully, there's a, a few things. Uh, first of all, he must have been an exceedingly wicked man. He must have been an exceedingly wicked man. Not just a wicked man, but a, a really, really, really mega wicked man. He was an exceedingly wicked man. And I have a, a few reasons for drawing this conclusion. Uh, first of all, we, we didn't read this text, but in Isaiah chapter 53, a well-known text that talks about how Jesus is this suffering servant. He's going to bear the sins of his people. Uh, this great prophecy 600 years prior to uh, the, the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. These events are foretold. And in verse 9, uh, we get an interesting uh, uh, fact that's conveyed in Isaiah 53, 9. It is that he will have his grave made or his death made with the wicked. Remember, 600 years prior to these events, Isaiah prophesying says they will make his grave with wicked men, with the wicked. Now, if you know Isaiah 53 well, the whole passage is seeking to demonstrate the shame and the humiliation attached to the death of Jesus Christ and all that he had to suffer. And apparently the fact that the Lord Jesus was crucified between these two criminals, these, these two men, was meant to add to his shame. He was crucified with those ones, that crowd. He was lumped in with the very worst of men. And so I conclude that this man, this dying thief, must have been exceedingly wicked because his wickedness, his manner of life was meant to contribute to the shame of our Lord upon the cross. Another reason we can conclude that he was so exceedingly wicked is that apparently this man's crimes were so great and he was considered such a hazard to society uh, that he's given the death penalty. Now granted, Roman culture was more liberal with the death penalty than we are in 21st century American culture. That said, you really had to mess up to get the death penalty. You had to do something really, really wrong in order to be put to death. And apparently this man has concluded his behavior is so heinous, it's so abhorrent, that the only way to deal with him is to put him to death. But there's a third reason why I conclude this man must have been exceedingly wicked. And that is the manner in which he was put to death. Perhaps you know this, that... Uh, the, the, the most extreme form of execution in the ancient world was crucifixion. There was no greater form of death. There were lots of other forms of death out there, of, of execution out there, but 
To die on a cross, to suffer such agony and such humiliation was considered the greatest way in which one could suffer and the most humiliating way in which a criminal could be executed. That's one of the reasons why they put Jesus on the cross, to humiliate him, to give him the most extreme form of punishment, for this man professes to be God. Well, this criminal was, was so wicked in the eyes of society, so, so abhorrent to his fellow men, that not only was he executed, he was executed in the most extreme form possible. He's killed upon a cross. So he's an exceedingly wicked man. But what else can we conclude about the thief on the cross? Well, secondly, we, we know he would have observed everything that happened from the moment Jesus left Pilate to the actual crucifixion. See how the whole affair with Pilate recorded in the previous chapter, excuse me, in Luke 23, Jesus leaves Pilate, and from there he's with these criminals. So all the events that we read of Jesus leaving Pilate, going to the place called the skull, and the whole crucifixion event, how they cast lots over his clothes, and and there were uh, Mary and Martha weeping, and, and all of that, that all occurs before the sight of this thief on the cross. In addition, it's slightly speculative, but probably true, that this thief on the cross had other prior knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He probably knew lots about Jesus and his notoriety and who he was, or at least who he claimed to be. For, for if we read on and went into chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, uh, we read there that Jesus, now risen, appears sort of disguised to two individuals on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking really intently about all the events of the past several days and Jesus catches up to them, and he says, what are you talking about? And they say to him, are you the only visitor in all of Israel? Like, where have you been? What rock have you been under? You don't know who who this Jesus is and all the events that have transpired. Apparently, Jesus was so notorious and famous a figure that there wasn't presumably anybody in Israel who hadn't heard of him, hadn't heard of the events of the previous days, certainly in his suffering and his death. So I conclude, I recognize to some degree it's speculation, but this man probably knew a lot more about Jesus. This wasn't his first experience with Jesus. Um, uh, Perhaps he had heard from prison about what this man was doing. Uh, Perhaps he overheard some of the centurions who guarded his particular cell about what they planned to do with Jesus as soon as he made a wrong move. Or perhaps he walked about for some time as a free man. Maybe he was at some of those parties that Jesus went to where there were so many notorious sinners. And he was perhaps among them and listened to the teaching of Jesus. Well, nonetheless, what we do know is that he certainly observed everything that happened from the moment Jesus left Pilate all the way to Jesus' dying moments. And then the third and final thing I think we can conclude about this man is that just moments prior to his, we'll call it his conversion, his coming to Jesus Christ, he himself was mocking and reviling Christ. You say, wait a minute, I don't see that in Luke 23. It looks like just the other one was mocking and reviling Christ, and then this man corrected him, and that's true. However, if we read of the same account in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, there we read, I'll just quote Matthew 27, verse 44, and the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. And Mark 15, verse 32 records a similar thing. So what are we to make of this? Do the gospels disagree with each other? Certainly not. Uh, We can conclude one of two things. Either this man remained silent for some time as this other thief and and, and those rulers and authorities there were ridiculing Christ and he was lumped in with the rest of them by association up until, of course, he turns from the reviling and believes on Jesus. Or what I conclude is that 
For some time, he was mocking Jesus along with everybody else. But after some time of observing Jesus and his suffering and the events surrounding the crucifixion, God sovereignly worked a change in his heart where he went from being one who mocked this man to one who believed that he himself was the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, and he put his hope and trust and devoted himself to the Lord Jesus. And it is to this man, this exceedingly wicked man, hazard to society, so abhorrent to his fellow men that he got a sentencing to crucifixion. This man who just moments prior was probably reviling and mocking the Lord Jesus. It's to this man that Jesus Christ grants forgiveness. It's to this man that he promises him pardon and eternal life forever in the paradise of God. Well, what's the obvious lesson? Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. If this man could be saved, anyone can be saved. Jesus' ministry was carried out among sinful people in need of grace and salvation. And if we read the Gospels in their entirety, we see that consistently Jesus is gravitating toward sinful people. And his desire is to save them and to forgive them and to make them well and to invite them into his kingdom. I'll just read a couple examples of this. Luke 5, verses 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You think this man on the cross was sick, sin sick, perhaps even sick in his mind that he would do the heinous things that he did? Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Those words were uttered by the Apostle Paul. Because he goes on to say, save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I don't think that Paul is employing hyperbole there. Uh, Paul persecuted the church prior to his conversion. Uh, uh, Paul uprooted families and divided children from their parents. I believe the Apostle Paul was actually a murderer. I know he was certainly complicit in the assassination of Stephen. But beyond that, we read the Apostle Paul was breathing out murders and threats toward the church, don't we? And when the Apostle Paul was converted, Christians don't even want to go near him because they think that actually he's trying to infiltrate the Christian group from within. They're afraid to actually draw near to this man. Like physically, I don't want to be in the same room with him. He's such a, a threat to our movement. And this man is saved. And Paul proclaims, 1 Timothy 1.15, this is why Christ came, to save sinners like me, to save sinners like this dying thief on the cross. And so my friend, if you see incredibly wicked people in the world, I mean, just, just really like the worst of the worst, heinously wicked people in the world, you should think, you should conclude, Jesus came to save people like that. Jesus came to save people like that. Who's the lowest of the low in our society? Who's like the worst person you could think of in American society today? Most hated individual. Harvey Weinstein? Larry Nasser? We might have said a few months ago, the late Hugh Hefner? And even as I list those names, are there some hearts in this room that say, no, 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 no. They cannot be forgiven. Their wickedness is so great that if they came to Jesus Christ, it would be a scandal if he forgave them. If he would save them after all that they've done. Well, I ask you, my friend, how great is your gospel? Can your gospel convert a terrorist? Can your gospel convert a murderer? 
Can your gospel save uh, someone who sexually abused others and did heinously wicked things? Well, I contend that if God can save this dying thief, this most abhorrent individual, he could save anybody. He could save anyone. This is the gospel message. But my friend, it's not just Harvey Weinstein. It's not just Larry Nasser who can be saved. You can be saved. You look inward, and you see all the dark and twisted things about yourself that no one else can see. And I tell you this morning, my friend, that you can be saved. Your sins, however great or small, do not disqualify you from salvation through Jesus Christ. If this man, this hardened criminal, whose sins led him to the most abhorrent form of execution imaginable, if this man could be saved, anyone can be saved. That's the first gospel principle from this text. Secondly, anyone can be saved. Secondly, salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. Consider this man who's uh, in his dying moments here next to Jesus. Did he have any good works at all, any good deeds at all that he could bring with him to his dying day? Up till this very moment, he's been a sinner all his life. He has been walking in good works or doing good things whereby he might earn God's favor. In fact, just a few moments prior, he was reviling and cursing Christ. And then his heart is converted and changed. He's regenerated by the grace of God, and he comes to believe on Jesus. And at that point, he has no works to bring to Christ. He knows he's going to die in just a few moments. What can he do? No good works that he could bring to his conversion. And yet, despite the clear teaching of Scripture, there are vast numbers of people who believe that to become a Christian means you have to clean up your act. It means you have to get your act together. If you don't do that, you can't become a Christian. That's necessary in order to be saved. And my friend, if people have this notion, they're not getting it from the Bible. I've spent my entire life studying the Scriptures, and I'm telling you, no such doctrine exists. This man had nothing to commend him. There was not a single good work he could point to that could commend him to Christ in his dying hours. So how can such a one be saved? Well, this second gospel principle, because salvation is all of grace. Personal merit is not allowed to enter the equation. Romans 5 and verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say while we were doing our best, while we were making a sincere effort, he died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well-known passage, Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. That's why I say works are not allowed to enter the equation. Personal merit is not allowed to enter the equation. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This man had no works to contribute to his conversion, and my friends, we have no works to contribute to our conversion. But not only that, this dying thief had no works to contribute after his conversion. He's about to die. What can he do? He, he can't get down from that cross and feed the hungry and 
clothe the naked and serve the church and volunteer as an usher or serve in children's ministry. Not that we ever would probably want this guy to do that. He would fail the background check, okay? But nonetheless, what good works could he do? He had nothing to contribute to his salvation. I'm so thankful uh, that in the scriptures we have recorded this incredible illustration of this principle that salvation is all of grace. No good works behind this man, no good works in front of him. It was all the grace of God by which he was saved. Salvation, my friend, is all of grace from beginning to end. John Newton understood this, author of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, maybe the most famous song in all the world. We love that song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But Newton understood that grace doesn't just come to us in the past tense. Because what, what does he go on to say in that song? Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. Grace comes to us in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. When you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you were pleading only his grace. And when you're on your dying bed, moreover, when you appear before the bar of Christ, and each one of us will, what are you going to plead? I really tried, Lord. I was sincere. I volunteered in this ministry and that ministry. I, I, was, I was doing my best. No, we'll plead only the grace of God in that last day. Lord, it was the grace of God that brought me safe thus far, and it's grace that now brings me home. And it's only by grace I can come to you even now, hoping for full pardon and final salvation. God is not like some great entrepreneur who invests in people like businesses. We're not like assets on his balance sheet or stocks in his portfolio. It's not like he invests grace in the center, like a cash infusion. Like, okay, I'm going to give you this great grace infusion, and I expect regular dividends, uh, and, and, and if I don't get them, I'm, I'm withdrawing my investment. My friend, have you begun to think that way? As if, having begun by grace, you can continue by your works. Okay, God's done his part. He's given me this great gift of grace, and now I have to do my part. I have to walk the straight line. I have to yield dividends for him. No, salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And the ground of our relationship with God never shifts from grace to performance. Now, I don't mean in any way to deprecate the necessary uh, value of good works. Christians are to grow in good works. They're to grow in personal holiness. We're to bear much fruit. But that fruit is only fruit. It's never the root. It's never the grounds of our salvation. It's only the necessary overflow of grace in the heart. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this text, said this of the thief. He did not offer a single plea, fetch from his doings, his present feelings, or his sufferings. But he cast himself upon the generous heart of Christ. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that was all. I wish that some who have been professors for years had as clear a faith. This poor felon trusted in nothing but the Savior and his mercy. And blessed be God for clear faith. I do rejoice to see it in such a case as this, so suddenly wrought and yet so perfect, so outspoken, so intelligent, so thoroughly restful. May we have so clear a faith that leans only on the grace of God. Third gospel principle illustrated in Luke 23, salvation is granted in a moment. Salvation is granted in a moment. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we read that and we say, that, that can't be it. You're telling me he gets off scot-free. All he had to do was renounce his wrongdoing and look to Jesus. That is exactly what I'm telling you. Why do you think the gospel is such good news? Why do you think those evangelicals who are faithful to the Bible and their heritage are obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and sing about it so much? It's that good. All you have to do is come to Jesus in repentance and faith and you'll be saved. To look to Jesus and to cast yourself upon him, that is what makes you Christ and makes you a Christian. There's a famous Christian song called To God Be the Glory. I wonder if you know it. That song includes the famous line, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Now, wherever did the writer get that notion? And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, this moment you will be with me in paradise. And so I say, if you come to Christ today, my friend, you will be saved in a moment. You don't have to go through some long process of moral reform. There's no 12-step plan I have to offer you. You come to Jesus today, and you will be granted salvation in a moment. You come believing on Jesus, and you can know and believe that salvation has been granted instantaneously. Salvation is granted in a moment. Fourth gospel principle. Jesus receives every sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith. Jesus receives every sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith. You say, well, I don't really see repentance and faith in this passage. Now, it's there. you just got to look closely. First, let's look at repentance. Clearly, at some point, this man came to see himself as a sinner deserving of punishment. He says to his friend, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence? And we indeed justly say we deserve this. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The dying thief knows that greater judgment is coming. That's why he talks to Jesus about his kingdom. So, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, because clearly I don't belong there in myself. I've been a hardened criminal all my life. I need to plead. I need to ask that you would remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, this is really the essence of repentance, agreeing with God about our sin. I deserve this. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve to suffer tremendously. I don't deserve to be in Christ's kingdom. This is what repentance is, agreeing with God about our sins. He knows he's a sinner, and he needs to be delivered from his sin. But you say, now, where's faith? Where's faith? Well, don't we see it in his words to Jesus? He said, Jesus, remember me, verse 42, when you come into your kingdom. That is the cry of faith. Faith is a humble looking to Jesus, asking him to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And faith never gets beyond this. Jesus, remember me. Look favorably on me. Bring me into your kingdom. Deliver my soul. Help me. Heal me. Save me. This cry from a dying man represents the very essence of faith itself. Looking to Jesus to do that thing which you cannot do for yourself. And this is the message. That Jesus Christ receives every sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith. I am just so thankful that as a preacher of the Christian gospel, this is the message that I have to share with you. Full pardon, free salvation for any sinner who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith. What a privilege to preach that message. That's something worth singing about. That's something worth giving your life to. 
Full pardon, full forgiveness. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. I don't have to say to you today, my friend, if you want to become a Christian, I have to explain to you a very complex system of rituals that you have to observe. Here's a long list of ethical standards and behavioral norms that you must adopt before you can be considered a member of our religion. Look, Jesus is willing to accept your application. He'll take a look at it, but just between you and me, it's not looking good. That's not our message. Our message is free forgiveness. It's grace for sinners who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And the promise is he receives every sinner who comes to him. This is the consistent testimony of the whole Bible. Some of you may know Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You come to Christ, do these things, believe on him and repent of your sin, you will be saved. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was constantly making these free offers of himself to others. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. John 7, verse 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, are you thirsty? I got water for you. I can satisfy you. I can make you well. Surely you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to judge the world, but that through his son he might save it. I love John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. The, the Greek there is u me ekbalo echo. U means no, me means no, ekbalo echo means cast out. So put it together. Two negatives there. Negatives in Greek don't the same way as English negatives. Okay? You use two negatives in the same sentence, Inadvertently, probably, you're affirming something. You're making a positive statement. It doesn't work that way in Greek. He says, ume ekbalo echo. No, no, will I cast you out. It communicates emphasis. And that's why in every English translation, you'll see something like, I certainly will not cast you out. By no means will I cast you out. I will never cast you out. It can't even enter my mind that I would cast out a sinner who comes to me in repentance and faith. Ume ekbalo echo. It cannot happen. I will receive every sinner who comes to me in repentance and faith. I love the pastor John Brown commenting on this text says this, no degree of previous guilt, no former habits of sin, no secret decree of God, no involuntary mistake, no feebleness in attempting to come to him will induce Jesus to reject a single individual who in faith of the truth comes to him for salvation. I love that. No feebleness in attempting to come to him. I feel feeble, and we, I don't even know if I'm coming to you in the right way. No feebleness in attempting to come to him will induce him to reject a single individual who comes in the faith of the truth for salvation. Christ honors those who come to him with nothing. That's how he wants you to come. He wants you to come weary. He wants you to come thirsty. He wants you to come hungry and lost and without a home, without protection, and to find all of that in him. 
Are you thirsty? I have water for you. Are you hungry? I have bread for you. Are you weary? I have rest for you. Are you lost and without shelter and protection? Come to me and in me you will find a home. And I'll make you safe and I'll make you well. You know that famous song, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And by the way, this doesn't change after you've become a Christian. Those of you who are here who have believed on Jesus Christ and have repented of your sins and found that he is a Savior for sinners, it doesn't change for you. We still come to Christ again and again with nothing in our hands. We come to him every day naked, looking for dress. We come to him every day helpless, looking for grace. We need always to be washed and to be cleansed by him. And your hope does not change. Listen, your dying breath, which you will utter on your deathbed, will be that very same thing you uttered when you were first saved. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the promise is that he will receive you. What else can you or I say in the judgment? Such consequential truths, such gravity, such finality. That last day, that coming day when every single knee will bow, when every single one of us will appear before the bar of Christ, what will you say to him? What can you say? Here's a good start. Father, remember me. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Fifthly and finally, and I need to wrap up, fifth gospel principle. Heaven is paradise with Christ forever. Heaven is paradise with Christ forever. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I said earlier, are there any sweeter words a weary soul could hear? Jesus saves people who want him and the everlasting life that he brings. Heaven is paradise with Christ forever. Christ himself is the gospel. We get eternal life with him. That is the reward that is held out for every believer. And so if you're not interested in Jesus, you won't want heaven. The gospel is no good news to you if you don't want the Lord Jesus Christ because what eternal life is, what heaven is, is paradise forever with the Lord Jesus. But see, this man, this dying thief, he knew that Jesus presented everything he wanted life, joy, and peace, and he would have it forever in the presence of Christ. Heaven is paradise with him forever. And my friend, I hold out to you this morning this promise that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you come to him turning from your sins, however great or small, and if you believe on him, this is what he will do for you. He will bring you into paradise with him forever. Well, my friend, you must do precisely as this dying man did. What is that? sang about it earlier. We sang about the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And it talks about this man who died alongside of Christ. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fount within his day. And there may I, though vile as he, I'm going to say, though worse than he, wash all my sins away. This dying thief literally saw that fount pouring from the veins of the Lord Jesus, from his head, from his feet, from his side. 
He believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusts that blood to wash him from every stain of sin. And so I tell you, my friend, you could have every stain of sin washed from your heart. You could be made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. All the hate, all the malice, all the bitterness, all the lust, all the pride, all the selfishness, all the manipulation, all the lies, it's all washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. That same blood can cleanse you from every stain of sin. So my friend, fly to Christ. Go to him and believe on him in repentance and faith and he'll wash you clean and make you his forever. And then do it every day for the rest of your life, trusting in his grace to save you from your sins. I'm going to close with a warning, a caution. Because I'm fearful that Satan has a sermon he wants to preach from this text. Just just go ahead and live your life however you want and just wait until those few moments right before death and then you got the jet out, get out of jail free card just, just believe on Jesus my friend all I can say to you is that remember there were two criminals there only one believed one was so hardened in his sin and one was so committed to reviling Christ to his dying day he did not believe but you can hear my voice now today you can hear this message today and you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have assurance of paradise forever with God today And I call you to believe as this dying thief did. Mercy after mercy was extended to him. He could have died at any point that evening. Thankfully, he lived long enough to trust Christ and his heart was changed and he believed on him. Well, you, my friend, you could die this afternoon. The Lord Jesus could come back before we conclude the final verse of the last song. Now is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus Christ and in him find full pardon. Find everlasting life. Find paradise forever with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you that through it, many of us have been saved. We thank you that all this is true. That anyone can be saved. That salvation is all of grace. That it can be granted in a moment. That every sinner who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith will be saved. And that heaven is paradise forever with Christ. Lord, we come to you again saying perhaps as we said when we first believed. My Lord, remember us when you come into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.